The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. This episode is sponsored by UnityVillage.org. Songwriter Karen Drucker returns to Unity Village with A Woman's Time Out Retreat, September 19th to 22nd. Learn more at UnityVillage.org forward slash events calendar. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Mirabai Starr, taught philosophy and world religions at the University of New Mexico Taos for 20 years, and now teaches and speaks internationally on contemplative practice and interspiritual dialogue. She's the author of several books, including God of Love, A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and Mother of God, Similar to Fire. Her newest book is Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. An excerpt from Wild Mercy appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Mirabai Starr, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rabbi Rami. So, it's so funny you call me Rabbi Rami. Our listeners should know that you and I are friends. So, you know, you can call me Rami. That's okay. If if it makes you uncomfortable, you can try His Holiness. (laughs) That would work. Good one. So, So, this book, Wild Mercy, is... It's a really deep dive into you. It's not what I expected. I, I thought it would be a more, I guess I'd say a safer book, mm. but but you did not play it safe in this book at all. It's, it's a pretty raw glimpse into your history and what makes you who you are now. So I thought to the extent you want to share, what what makes you Mirabai at this point? <laughs> Ay, who cares? But okay, I'll <laughs> do my best. Um, I, you know, I think that there, I'm such a deeply embodied, sensual, relational human being that there would be no way that I could write a kind of encyclopedia of women mystics and saints and and goddesses and archetypal wisdom beings across the spiritual traditions. You know, it it has to be connected to my own um, life and my own being. And I'm also trying to bear witness and, and stand up in my own um, search and my own struggles and my own awakenings uh, in, in sharing this book about women's wisdom across the spiritual spectrum. I'm, I'm really trying to be an exemplar for, for some of this, both the positive and, and difficult aspects of, of this interspiritual journey into women's wisdom. Well, you talk about some of the difficult things. I mean, you, your first teacher, you found him when you were 15. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, I write about that extensively in my memoir, Caravan of No Despair. Um, and I tell that story and it's the first time I've ever told it publicly. And it was really important to be able to tell it. Since that came out in 2015, I think it was, 
um, the Me Too movement has happened and a lot of people are stepping up, telling their stories of sexual abuse uh, by, you know, especially women uh, with men of po- in power, in positions of power. And so um, I was slightly ahead of the curve there, but but in telling that, retelling that story in this book, I'm giving a very, very abbreviated version. And no, it did not go well. And what I, but what I tell about when I tell that story in this new book, Wild Mercy, is the ways that I was indoctrinated in this kind of masculine paradigm of spirituality that was all about transcending the body and, and the earth and getting to God beyond this, this um, veil of illusion, like seeing the world as an illusion to be transcended and seeing the body as a problem to be perfected and purified. And that's a very, to me, masculine spiritual paradigm. And that's what I was trained in. And that, that in a way um, made me more susceptible to violation of my body because the body was just an illusion to be transcended. And so this book is so much about reclaiming the body as holy and looking to the different visions and embodiments of, of that kind of wisdom across all the spiritual traditions. Sometimes I get the sense that this masculine spirituality that is the still, I think, the primary paradigm, this um, body transcending matter as illusion kind of thing, it almost sounds like a con for the abuse of women students. Exactly. That's what I'm trying. That's precisely the, the case that I make in this book. Well, that's what I thought. But but I, was, I guess wanted to get confirmation that, that I, I read it right and that my feelings are, are in the right direction. Because I, I think that's a lot of it is what it is, which really makes the fact that you, oh, I don't know how you, you put this, but your woundedness becomes your way to a full embrace of the body, the, the material, not, you know, no, no longer making this distinction spiritual material. It's all this divine happening right. that allows you to be incredibly... Uh, intimate, uh, physically present, and and in no sense demeaning of, you know, Maya. If we're going to even use that word, that's probably the wrong word to use. But demeaning of of the material world. Yes. Well, exactly. And I think our our wounds are often the portals to um, spaces of of reclamation and joy. And so this was no different. But I also want to say that that the ways that we have disparaged the body and made an effort on, in these spiritual traditions to transcend the earth as if it were somehow this place of illusion, Maya or a veil of tears in the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition or whatever, has also uh, made the earth vulnerable, that we have treated the earth terribly and violated her for the same reasons that we have oppressed and violated women. Absolutely. It's all of, it's all of one cloth. So how does that lead, do you think, to what Andrew Harvey calls the return of the divine mother? I think more and more of us are experiencing God as mother rather than father. That, mm-hmm. that there's, I mean, that's part of the fierce and tender wisdom of women mystics, but I also get the, the experience and, uh, for me personally, of the fierce and tender wisdom of the mother. Yeah. And, I, and I think you you and I share that. Yes. And, and it's interesting as um, my relationship with the 
with the sacred feminine and with, with the feminine in general has deepened by virtue of this work that I've been doing, uh, the book and the associated teachings, is that the feminine has expanded to me beyond mother or for me, beyond just mother. She is definitely mother, but she is also sister. She is also buddy, pal, friend, <laughs> intimate. She is also lover. And which reminds me, you know, and she's beloved, you know, she's, I used to speak out in prayer to the beloved. I always have since I was a teenager, that has been my primary way of relating to the mystery, to the great mysteries as beloved. And, and now I've noticed myself referring to still saying beloved, but envisioning beloved as she, and I am a heterosexual cis woman but that she carries this also almost erotic element. Maybe that's the fierce and, and wild part of wild mercy and the fierce and, and tender um, wisdom teachings. And so that reminds me that I make, of, make it very clear in this book and in my, in my teachings that I am reaching out to people of all genders in this book, but I'm reaching out to the feminine in all genders. In other words, for men like you, Rami, who who are really making an effort to, and I think also very easily embrace these feminine values of wildness and tenderness and, and all of those, those attributes that I'm emphasizing. Um, so for men like you, but also for people who, are, who find themselves on a whole fluid spectrum of gender, this book is, is calling us to cultivate and honor and, and excavate these great feminine wisdom teachings. So it's for the people of all genders who hunger for the feminine wisdom that has been historically undervalued and even very expertly buried. Right, buried. Let me ask you about this term erotic that you, you mentioned just a moment ago. It seems to me that one of the dangerous things and I mean this in a positive way, if you can use the word dangerous, you know, yeah. positively, that, that one of the, the dangerous aspects of deep spiritual work is that it is thoroughly erotic. It's, I, think, I think the term Freud uses is polymorphously perverse, which <laughs> doesn't sound good. But what it means is when little kids, little kids are polymorphously perverse, meaning their entire bodies are alive to aliveness. And, and, and eventually, I think that's what we mean when we use the word erotic in the best sense. How is that received, you think, when you talk about this? When I mean, you can elaborate on the erotic for us. And then how is that received when, when you're teaching? Does that mm -hmm. freak people out? So far, no. So, okay, first I'll elaborate. I'm all about emphasizing the personal direct connection with the mystery, with the sacred, with the divine, with the beloved. And personal direct experience is is intimacy it's intimacy with the source of all love that's what we're after here and so i think that the women mystics of all traditions and the goddesses as well across the spiritual spectrum without naming it eroticism are emphasizing that personal heart connection that is also a, a, an experience of embodiment, of full incarnation, of the 
the sacred, the spirit pouring into the body and into infusing every particle of the created world with holiness. Like to me, that's the feminine. The Shekhinah isn't as, um, as Reb Zalman's widow Eve says, is not uh, Mrs. God. The Shekhinah is God. The Shekhinah is God flowing into all that is and indwelling and embodying everything. And so, well, I'm speaking to a rabbi, I should be careful. But to me, that's an exceedingly um, sensual reality. And that's where we meet the beloved is right here in creation and in these imperfect bodies and in these messy lives of ours and in all of our relationships and in all of the broken spaces of this world. And so there, so when I say erotic, I don't just mean sexual, I mean intimate and radically alive and deeply, fundamentally relational. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Yeah, that's that. Thank you for for expanding on the on the term itself. This notion of a personal direct experience with what you call the source of all love is. I was going to ask you how you define mystic, but that seems to me. I'm going to let me. Let me repeat what you said and with a question mark and see if we're on the right track. That for you, because this is true for me, a mystic is someone who does not settle for a secondhand experience of God, read about it, hear someone else's experience, but who longs for and, and, and opens to a personal direct experience with the source of all love. Is that when you that's, use mystic in the titles? I've said it better and I've said it in a hundred ways and that's the best way I've ever heard. That's great. Yes. Well, that was you. <laughs> I just read back. I wrote down what you said while you said it, and I just read it back to you. So it's, I like your version better. Well, I think I was just quoting you, but okay. Oops. Um, Didn't George so, Bush do that once, quote himself? Never mind. Go on. It could be. I don't know. Um, so it, I, I'm curious if you think that's religion is scared of mysticism, even though mysticism's exist within religious frames. I mean, there's Christian mystics and Buddhist and Hindu and Jewish Muslim mystics. But even though they, they exist or can exist within religious frames, it seems like we're moving into a time when perhaps a, a, a mysticism without an adjective is emerging, sort mm. of a free-floating mysticism, because the organized religions are really frightened of the stuff you're talking about, this eroticism, this personal direct experience of the source of all love. I mean, it's religion really wants you to have, if, if they want you to have any experience, it's a mediated experience through the rabbi, through the priest, through the text, through the, you know, whatever, through the practices. And, and you need the institution to have that happen. But my sense is, and I'm asking you for your take on it, is something else is going on. And there's this um, unlabeled mysticism that people are discovering that is hopefully transforming, has the potential to transform human consciousness and culture. 
Exactly. And it's and it's inextricably entwined, I think, with the rising of feminine voices and feminine wisdom. And it's a deep hunger, I think, that that people, as I said, of all genders uh, have for this direct experience. So it's kind of the opposite of New Age, because in many ways, the New Age movement did not improve much on the patriarchal models that they sought to um provide an alternative to because they're still very much uh, rooted in kind of esoterica that that is connected to the very traditions that they that they um, hope to to differ from but I think that this so so this emerging desire for direct experience is not coming from that fluffy superficial space it's coming from a very deep authentic, rigorous desire, uh, longing for God, even if we don't call it God, because many of us are kind of allergic to religiosity and to, and to theological terminology and belief systems of any kind, of any kind. And so we're seeking something that is direct and personal and intimate and also completely connected to this world and to the problems of this world where we do not make a distinction between action and contemplation uh, anymore. You use the word rigorous, which I really appreciate. I think that that too many people who are you know, leaving organized religion think that what we're talking about doesn't require any rigor. Uh, but in fact, it's it's just the opposite. It's just it's opposite. more rigorous to do this uh, this direct experience. I, I want to tell a story that maybe I get right, maybe I get wrong. So you can correct me <laughs> if I'm remembering this wrong. Uh, and the story is a lead into the question about this um, mysticism without labels. So so here's here's my memory. You and I are in Taos, and you take me to the Hanuman Temple, and this family from India comes in, and they're looking for a priest to do puja, to do the worship service, and there's nobody there but the two of us, and they're not looking for a Jewish service, but you (laughs) said to them, oh, I can do it, and they said, fine, and you all sat down, and I don't remember, you didn't have a text, you you knew it all by heart, and you just went through this Sanskrit liturgy with them and they were they were very grateful and touched and moved and and i was astounded so um it was just very impressive that you could do that okay so kudos to you for that but the question (laughs) is how many traditions do you carry i I get the sense that that you and, and i would consider myself part of this too that we weave different traditions together in some kind of interspiritual practice or interspiritual reality that that brother Wayne Teasdale coined for us when he wrote his book on uh, the mystic heart. And so you've got Hinduism, you've got, I mean, you're Jewish, you've got, the, you write about the uh, Christian mystics. Is there anything you don't draw from or do you really find power in, in all these different practices? I do draw on almost all of them and, and in a very, um, um, yes, rigorous way. I have, I have deep study and practice and experience in multiple spiritual traditions. And, and I want to make sure we include Sufism in there. It's a very important and dear tradition to me. And I've had a Buddhist mindfulness meditation practice since I was 16. Um, but the, the tradition that I do not 
weave into this basket are any of the indigenous wisdom ways. And that is simply because I do not feel that I have the right to draw from those wellsprings because those are colonized cultures and they've been colonized by my people, by privileged white people. And so I only feel like I have the, yeah, the right to borrow and claim for my own the the cultural treasures of traditions that are traditions that have held power and not been oppressed. I mean, Judaism's different because we have been a persecuted people forever. Um, but it's it's not. Right, but you are Jewish, so so you're not appropriate any anything. Right, right. But I mean, I'm not only the from the culture of of power. I'm also from a culture that has been oppressed, but not the same way that indigenous and indigenous and First Nations people have been. Does that make any sense? No, I think it makes it makes a lot of sense. Um, I don't draw from native traditions either, only because I'm not. I haven't been initiated into anything. It's not. It's not part of my experience. Uh, I, I mean, it gets it probably gets murky if we go too deeply into it. But I, I recognize what you're saying. I think it's an important thing to to note and to honor. And so, I've also been yeah, to, to India, and I Neem Karoli Baba has been my guru since I was 13 years old. Like I've been deeply steeped in the Hindu tradition, which is why I was able to lead that Hanuman Chalisa that you that you yeah. remember because it's so much part of every fiber of my being. Well, and you did it beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so I get a sense, I see you as sort of as paradigmatic of a spirituality that is beyond just emerging. I mean, it's, it's coming into its own. But this, this spirituality that doesn't allow except when appropriation is the issue, but doesn't allow us to be siloed. You know, like, oh, you're a Jew, you can only do this. Right. It seems to me that before you're a Jew, you're a human. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, we could push back on the, even on the native stuff, but, but you're a human. And as a human, I, see, I think we're heir to all of humanity's uh, spiritual wisdom. So, so do you think, forget, and I mean, I don't want to personalize it and you say, yes, I am, you know, the, the paradigm, follow me. I don't mean to say that. But do you see that paradigm emerging, whether or not you see yourself embodying it? Mm-hmm. Definitely, because, I mean, it's a global world. It doesn't, these silos just actually don't make any sense anymore. And people who are holding on, fundamentalists, um, especially religious fundamentalists, but fundamentalists of any variety who are holding on to their tribal membership right now are are basically grasping a smelly corpse because these these segregated spaces are dissolving and we are becoming one family. That is not to deny the very real issues of race and, and oppression and power differentials and so on that need to be addressed and need to be addressed, you know, honestly. Um, but yes, I think that I do, I am part of a wave because of the way I was raised in the counterculture where I was naturally exposed to many different spiritual and cultural traditions. I think I represent that that bridge person between those who are rooted in specific traditions and this new landscape that has yet to completely reveal itself. Um, that is that is other than that, where where those those divisions uh, melt and we find more 
common commonality. However, I think we need to bring along the wisdom jewels from all the world's great traditions, as you have so beautifully gathered in so much of your work, Rami, and not squander them, not throw those those beautiful babies out with the bathwater of religion, but but bring them um, into the table of humanity as as this new interspiritual landscape emerges. And yes, I see a, a true hunger for that among people everywhere I go. And we are going to have to leave it there. And that's a beautiful place to leave it. Our guest today, Mirabai Starr, is the author of Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. An excerpt from Wild Mercy appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Mirabai's work on her website, mirabaistar.com. Mirabai, thanks so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. It was great fun, Rami. Thank you. You're welcome. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a bi-weekly column called Roadside Musings. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our executive producer is Ben Nussbaum. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on The Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again, don't take your dreams lying down.